0: Now, we're going to turn to our Bible reading, which is found on Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet, and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven... Give good gifts to those who ask him. A judgmental religious community of any kind is a very unattractive and unpleasant place. A place where people are looked down on for not measuring up. Where people, where people are on the lookout for every little slip up, every little mistake. Now some of us here may have been part of communities like that and it can leave a scar. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is speaking to people who have grown up in a community just like that where hypocritical religious leaders made most people feel like they were frankly dirt, where judgmentalism was just normal. A lot of people around us react against the church if not having seen that, at least then assuming that the church will be like that, that perhaps Scottish Presbyterianism is going to be hard and hidebound and narrow-minded with a kind of cruel streak. And while that may not have been the norm, there have been places like that, of course. The reality is, of course, that that kind of mindset doesn't even need religion to flourish, does it? Plenty of our political debates at the moment are tinged with the same kind of judgmental, dismissive, angry streak uh, on both sides. Occasionally, you can even find people being deeply judgmental, judging people for being judgmental. And so it, it makes us want to know, you know, how can you create a community that genuinely isn't judgmental, one of welcome and acceptance and kindness and warmth? Now, Jesus is going to say in that most famous verse, uh, that we mustn't judge. But what he says goes a little deeper than that. Because it's, it's never enough just to say not judge, and by it mean it doesn't matter what people do. That always comes becomes unstuck in the end, doesn't it? When the evil p- other people do it begins to hurt us. It's, it's one thing to say I won't judge people for what they do in their private lives. It's a whole other thing to avoid judging them for cruel things they may say or do to you. So Jesus' answer goes deeper. It starts with recognizing the evil in all our hearts. It starts with recognizing where we have gone wrong. It's the opposite, um, probably, of the way our society usually does things. The assumption that everyone is a good person, and we all like to think of ourselves as good people, unless... Of course, someone's a drug dealer or a murderer or a cheat, and then we can look down on those bad people. That's a problem, in a sense, that Jesus is dealing with, the tendency to think we're all great unless we're one of those people that everyone looks down on. Of course, looking into our hearts and seeing the darkness and spending a lot of time thinking about our own sin could be deeply discouraging. It could leave us, frankly, perhaps not self-righteous anymore, but then perhaps just Slightly depressed and grumpy and not that great to be around. The secret was actually in the song we sang earlier, My Worth and My Unworthiness. That, that song is saying, I don't get my pride or my self-worth for being a great person. I get it because Jesus loves me. God has chosen to forgive me and buy me back and make me his. So whatever darkness I find inside, that unworthiness, my unworthiness is real, but still... I have a value fixed by him. When we recognize those two things, when we hold them together, we can treat others with real mercy. Now Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount is coming to a close. He's been criticizing the Pharisees' approach to righteousness, to goodness. His disciples to be very different. Not approaching goodness from the outside in, brushing up behaviors on the outside, but from the heart starting with putting our hearts right, with the result of behaviors that are better. But our hearts are pretty messed up places, so it's very easy for us to turn that itself into a new kind of righteousness and judgmentalness, to maybe look down on those stupid, arrogant Pharisees or their equivalent in our own day. Because we live up to a higher standard, so we look down on them. So he says, he starts by saying, do not judge. And it's a very serious command. That's the first thing I want to look at today, just that command to not judge in in one and two. And he says, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The standards you apply when you look down on other people will be applied to you. So if, if you aren't sure you're squeaky clean, don't look down on other people. Unless you want to be called up on every aspect of hypocrisy, every time you've done something wrong, Every time you've done something you've judged someone else for, then don't judge. The Bible says there will be a judgment by Jesus, the judge who is completely pure, completely right, without a grain of hypocrisy. If he were to tell you on the final day, you said that person is no good because of what they've done, then what ought he to say to you? Or indeed to me? At that point in the sermon, it's very easy to think, okay, that means I should just let others be. I've got enough problems of my own. I shouldn't really care about what they get up to and just focus on myself. Jesus, though, in this passage, wants us to think really hard about what he's saying, about what he means. Um, He does that by giving us a sort of paradox. Down in verse 6, he's going to say, do not give dogs what is sacred and do not give your pearls to pigs. From someone who's just said, don't judge, that's a pretty strange statement. Then further down in verse 15, he's going to warn us to look out for false prophets, false teachers. In other words, Christian teachers who are pretending to be Christian teachers, but teaching something different, not the real deal. And the way to spot them, he says, is through the way they live larger, through their fruits. So we're to be not judgmental, but we're still to have the capacity to watch out that sort of life that doesn't measure up to Jesus' teaching. So when Jesus, what's Jesus doing? He's telling us when he says don't judge, he means something quite specific. You can use that word judge in different ways, can't you? You can evaluate. It can mean, it'd be quite neutral. You know, I taste my bolognese to judge whether it needs more salt or not. And in life we need to do that. We need common sense. We need the capacity to call a spade a spade sometimes. And sometimes we need to stand up against wrong in our communities and in the world around us. There's a need to be wise, but then there's the other use for the word judge, is to do what a judge themselves does. It's to not just to evaluate and discern, to but to condemn, to sentence people for the behaviour, to say you deserve punishment. And Jesus is saying, don't set yourself up as a judge. Don't take other people and then make yourself the arbiter of right and wrong, and condemn them. Don't look at other people and say you're not worthy. You deserve punishment. You are beneath me. Jesus is saying, we, we mustn't do that. Because God is judge. We are to treat him as the one who knows perfectly the difference between right and wrong. He's the one with the power to put things right. He's the one who judges. And we as human beings are the ones in the dock who are guilty. And if we're Christians, we know we're guilty. We accept his mercy, His forgiveness. And we can't, if we're going to accept the forgiveness of and the mercy of the great judge, we can't turn around and make ourselves judges. That's what Paul does. And he expands on this teaching in Romans. He says, Christ died and returned to life so that he could be the Lord of the dead and the living. So then why do you judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? We'll all stand before God's judgment seat. He says, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Not an account for our brothers, or not for our sisters. Now, Jesus wants to help us actually recover from the kind of hypocrisy that leads to judgment. Though he doesn't want to just forbid it, so he carries on in three and four and teaches us about recovering from hypocrisy. How do we put it into practice? That's why Jesus tells us this wonderful little parable. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay attention to the plank? No attention to the plank in your eye. Now. That's a pretty daft image, isn't it? You can just imagine it for a second. You're chatting to someone, their eyes watering a little bit, and the wind's blowing some tiny bit of dust into your eyes. You, you know what that feels like, don't you? It's very small, but it's really frustrating. You can't get it out. The Tears are coming. can't see quite clearly. But when that happens, you're so careful. It's really annoying, but you're not going to go near it with a big, sharp pair of tweezers, let alone you know, a pair of pliers. And here you have this person who wants to take it out, yourself perhaps, with this great two-by-four sticking out of their eye, nearly knocking over people as they walk around. And Jesus says, that's what it's like when we're looking down and judging other people. And if we want to be any use, any help at all, we need to take that plank out of our own eye to recognize, in other words, that we too are recovering hypocrites. That's what he calls us. He says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eyes. Get the plank out of your own eye. In other words, start to sort out your own sin, your own problems, before you start messing with the delicate, fragile things that are going to hurt your brother or sister in Christ. So what does that mean? Three, three things, I think, here. Humor, proportion, and practice. Jesus uses a ridiculous image. I mean, uh, let's get this clear. Imagine it in your head. This is a daft image, isn't it? You know, Jesus is using, if you'd heard this for the very first time, there would be a few sniggers. For us, it's a bit more familiar, but he wants us to see just how ridiculous we can be. He wants us, in other words, to have the capacity occasionally to perhaps even consider laughing at ourselves. When we're moaning about other people or telling them to pull their their socks, so often we're ignoring our own sins. I mean, have have you ever been so grumpy in the morning that you get grumpy with other people for being grumpy? Yeah, I, I'm glad I'm not the only one. So he says, look, take a look at the silliness when you look down on other people, because there's a lot of it. We're quite funny creatures. You know, sin's serious. don't? He, 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 that's clear. But he does want us to see the daft side. So when we next get tempted to gripe about someone, just remember something that you did the other day and just think, well, imagine if they've been telling me off for that. It gives you a sense of your own daftness. We all need that, don't we? We all need just a sense of humor about our own failings. He also wants a sense of proportion. Um, We see other people's faults so easily, don't we? You know, they're hard to miss. And that's not, Jesus isn't saying they're not real, he's not denying them. But he's saying, you know, stuff in your own eye makes a lot more of a difference to the way you see someone else, something in someone else's eye. And we are so easily so blind to our own faults. So we've got to just make a genuine conscious effort to count our own faults as bigger and more important than those of others. Because even if they aren't, it takes that effort to get things into the right proportion, because we're naturally so far out of proportion. So we should be looking out for the times we annoy people. We should listen to our critics, even when they're unfair and grumpy. And When our family are frustrated with us, maybe it's for the wrong reasons, but it gives us a chance to examine our hearts and think, wait a second, what have I done that's a little frustrating to other people? Recognizing our own sin just gives us a sense of proportion as well as a sense of humor. The other thing it gives us is, is practice, in a sense. Practice. Practice and wisdom in understanding human sin, human hearts, human faults. You know, it's like real life, you know, if you, my kids recently have been getting quite a lot of things in their eyes, and they're not eager for someone else to touch their eyes, understandably. Uh, it's hard to help them. But if you'd never had anything in your own eye, you would blunder about so carelessly if you didn't know just how difficult it is to have something coming towards the pupil and, and not to blink, not to shrink away. If you want to know how to help and to love other people, you've got to Have that feeling of how delicate and painful it can be to deal with your own heart. We need to know from experience what it is to fight against sin and temptation. That's when we learn to treat others with the right gentleness and grace. You know, even Jesus, who did not sin, (laughs) to prepare for his ministry, went out into the desert to be tempted. He was prepared for loving us by learning the depths of temptation. We understand human faults and sins, not by committing them, but by fighting them. It's just like, you know, if the the best person to help an addict is certainly not another addict. Sometimes someone who's not an addict can do better, but often the best person is someone who has been there and isn't there any longer. When we spend a decent amount of time dealing with our own sins and failings and weaknesses... It keeps us from being shocked by what other people do. It us, keeps us from that knee-jerk reaction of condemnation. Because even if we haven't done the same thing, we'll know that yeah, we have similar evils deep down in our own hearts. And we'll be able to recognize the truth in that old saying, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. Even with all the advantages I've had, I've fallen so far short of where I should be, so that I know if things have been just a bit different, a different upbringing, a different home, a different school, different friends, or perhaps... Slightly different genes. And I'd have crashed and burned just like that other person did. That's a lesson for all of us recovering hypocrites. How to deal with the planks in our own eyes. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying, and sometimes, sometimes this needs said, he's not saying don't call out anything wrong until you're perfect. Um, people let abuse of all sorts slip sometimes through the net because of doing that. So he's not saying that. In fact, in Matthew 18, Jesus will say, when your brother does something against you, you should tell them, quietly, without any gossip, what they've done, so they can put it right. But of course, we will never be able to do that well unless we have the willingness to put the things in our own hearts right when they come and tell us. So we need that humor, we need proportion, and we need practice. But then Jesus comes and He shocks us. I think he's trying to shock us out of a kind of arrogance here. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. What on earth is he talking about? Jesus often talks about the gospel, good news about him, as something deeply precious. In in Matthew 13, it is called the pearl of great price. It is the most precious thing we have. The, The possibility of becoming God's child, of being forgiven, of having new life through Jesus Christ, through his death in our place. We've got the solution, in other words, to all human sin and all human evil in what he's given us. Most of us, most of the time, are too timid about telling other people about that, about telling people about him and what he's done for us. But there is an opposite error, the error of ramming it down people's throats when they aren't the slightest bit interested. And Jesus is shocking out of the arrogance that leads us to do that. He's saying, when you are... Ramming the gospel down people's throats, talking to people about Jesus who really have made it very, very clear they do not want to hear. You, you, you would be as well to give pearls to pigs. They're, they're just not pigs. Aren't interested in pearls. I, I don't know. Um, you, you know how sometimes kids who don't have any bread to throw to ducks will from sometimes throw stones in the hope that the duck will still go over looking for a nice piece of bread. Now I'm sure none of you ever did that. Um, but that's the kind of image we've got here except instead of stones it's something really valuable to us keep on ramming the gospel down to people's throats you get in trouble for it either it damages relationships in our time that's the main thing in their time they had to be careful that it didn't lead to far worse there's no need to court, persecute him, to to, to choose martyrdom when it's not necessary. It comes at a time when, you, when you've told people the gospel, you just stop. You, if you're close to them, if you're family or friends, of course, you, you keep praying and praying and praying. You keep watching for future opportunities. And you know, often people open up after big life events or shocks or things like that. But, or they're opened up when they see God's power at work in someone else's life. But you don't keep ramming things down people's throats because that just puts them off and makes them scoff at the gospel. Jesus wants us to approach with gentleness and with wisdom instead of the same kind of arrogance that lies under judgmentalism. Now, as we get towards the close, if we as a church are a community that genuinely recognizes the evil in our own hearts, the wrong that we do, without being discouraged by it because we are aware of forgiveness and therefore are marked by an ability to laugh at ourselves to hold things in the right proportion and by real experience of the human heart and its struggles we will be gracious and welcoming even to the very worst sinners of all we will love them and we will respect them without the need to downplay what they've done without the need to excuse it because we can see where we too have gone wrong When a church is like that, it is a beautiful thing. But it's hard, (laughs) frankly. Um, It's hard especially, as we said, when people have hurt us or when they're doing or have done things in the past which are deeply shocking. And of course, Jesus isn't saying that you can join and take the membership vows of a church without any regard to how you're living or anything like that, not at all. But he is saying that our attitude is to be utterly welcoming even to those whose sins might shock us absolutely most. Um, I think, for example, of in the terms of people I've known, you know, a guy who had done time for child abuse. You know, when you, someone like that comes to church, you've got to have your head screwed on. You don't let them near the kids, obviously. But can you love them? Can you forgive them? It's a big ask, isn't it? Very big ask. Probably beyond most of us. That's where Jesus goes next. I want to point out two things, just from that next part of the passage and then from the life of Jesus. The, the next part of the passage, ask, seek, knock, it looks at first sight like just an encouragement to prayer and on on one level it is but remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount already has talked about prayer he's a big section on it in chapter 6 and here he doesn't teach us about the kind of things we should pray for rather I think what's going on is that as he comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount with this part of the passage in mind or the previous parts of the passage because frankly the whole Sermon on the Mount is full of very challenging things he's saying if you've really listened to this you'll have come to the end and thought I can't do this. This is utterly beyond me. God is asking me to do things I just can't do. And frankly, when I look inside, I need whole levels of forgiveness I hadn't seen before. And he's saying, okay, ask. It will be given. Come, seek me. Seek the Father. Seek forgiveness. Seek the power to change your life. And it will be given. Knock and the door will be opened. I will welcome you in. Despite anything you might have done, I will love you. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. You have a Heavenly Father who's waiting for you to ask for help in becoming more like Jesus and in living out his teaching. Everyone who asks receives. When you seek this God, he will make you his child and change your heart. You'll find him and he will welcome you in. The other thing to remember in a passage like this is that Jesus himself was the only person without sin to step on this earth. He was the only one without a single speck in his eye. He could clearly see all the evil, all the darkness in all our hearts and all our minds. He could see the human condition for exactly what it is. And he himself is the good judge who will come to judge the living and the dead. And yet he chose to come first. Not to judge, but to be judged. To be judged in that first Easter by a biased human court. So that he might carry the weight and the penalty of all that we had done wrong. Of all our failings. All that we've done wrong. Even our judgmentalism. You know, he didn't choose to fold his arms and shake his head and say, you know, shame on you. He opened his arms in love towards us on the cross. He bowed his head under the weight of all our guilt. And he bore our shame so that we could be forgiven and made entirely new. Which is why Romans says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's receive that firstly as a reminder that for those around us whatever they've done there is forgiveness and we cannot do less than offer the same forgiveness Jesus offers us but also this is for us. There is no condemnation, no judgment from Jesus, from God towards us if we will come to him and accept his forgiveness. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that you would truly help us to be people with unjudgmental hearts, people who would not look down on others, not hold others in contempt, but would welcome them with the same love that you have welcomed us, the same forgiveness with which you've welcomed us. Father, please help us to see the goodness of that welcome that you give. The wonderful promises of answer for our prayers to know you better and to live in the way that you call us to. And most of all, that you promise to be there when we call on you to to rescue us and to save us and forgive us and make us yours forever. In Jesus' name.